Hello everyone and welcome to episode 323 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community, especially during this interesting time that we live in. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series, and soon to be the author of what? The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery, coming to you in September 2020. Very exciting. Did you like How... Did you like my voice, my voiceover voice there? That's a good voiceover voice. I know. Very good. I, know. I think but I should hire myself out. More importantly, more importantly. <laughs> How are you, Al? <laughs> oh, do you know what? I am busy. I am so busy. I am very, very, very busy. What am I busy doing? Okay. Well, I'm oh. proofreading my novel, yeah. but I'm also in like full organisation mode of um, – and you and I are both in organisation mode, let's face it. But um, mm. So we – obviously there's been a whole lot of stuff cancelled uh, in the mm. sort of you know current mm. climate situation, um, you know, that we're all in at the moment. And um, so we are sort of like as soon as everything started getting cancelled, and by everything, I mean, you know, I'm talking about in our writing world, I'm talking about literary events, I'm talking about school visits, I'm talking about, you know, workshops, I'm talking about meetups, I'm talking about conferences, I'm talking about all of the things and, of course, book launches, all of the things that kind of, you know, make the world, the writing world go round and allow authors to talk about their books, promote their mm. books. Um, and it's very, very hard to launch a book if you can't talk about your book. Uh, it's very hard to get word of mouth if no one's ever heard of your book. Yes. So we started thinking about ways that we might be able to support because, you know, we're part of a large community and mm. we obviously we work pretty hard to, you know, to create a community around us. And so we started talking about different ways that we might be able to to support that. So one of the things that uh, Valerie and I have got coming up is a, um, a special uh, series of yep. author interviews of debut authors, debut Australian authors um, who have got, you know, books launching in the next couple of months, who have seen their events and their launches and all of the other things that, you know, all of the parades, like, you know, we talk about the fact, I talk about this regularly, that you, yeah. you know, you put your book out and you, you know, you feel like there should be a parade and there's not often a parade, mm -hmm. but at the moment there's no parade at all. There's like definitely not a parade. And yeah. so Valerie and I are attempting to create a parade, okay. <laughs> a parade. So we're having a parade of debut authors um, and that series will start um, like it's obviously we've got a bit of organisation to do so it'll start in a few weeks' time. So we do hope you'll all enjoy that because these are people obviously if you're, um, if you're an aspiring author, if you're working hard on a manuscript, these are the people who are just a lot over the line. They are just ahead of you in the process and so I think there's a lot to learn uh, from them. So we're very much looking forward to that. And the mm -hmm. other thing that I've been doing um, is, of course, you know I have my Your Kids Next Read uh, Facebook community with Megan Daly, celebrity yes. librarian and uh, <laughs> author, and Alison Rushby, um, middle grade author. Um, mm -hmm. And we we have a huge community now, like we have over 10,000 members in that group. And so we got together and we were thinking, well, what can we do? Uh, so what we're doing uh, is a kind of a joint exercise of bringing joy to our community as well as joy to our authors is a 30 books in 30 days um, Aussie author super tour. So mm -hmm. every day in 
it's it starts on the um it, it will have started by the time this comes out but it's gonna it goes for 30 days so if you're only hearing this you know and it's uh we, we've, we've already started don't panic there's lots and lots of books to be won we're giving away a book a day yeah, for 30 days in the Your Kids Next Read Facebook community. The books um, will be posted out by the authors themselves. So we have got in the terms and conditions that they will be posted as soon as is practicable. Um, and if there's any disruption to the postal service, because of course we don't know what's going to happen, we don't know how this is all going to work, um, they will be posted as soon as things go back to normal. So you will mm. get your book, um, mm. hopefully sooner rather than later, but we're not exactly sure. Um, and so 30 books in 30 days, Australian authors, children's authors. We've got everything from picture books to young adult um, uh, novels. Uh, we've got them all lined up. They're all ready to go. And uh, we're very excited about it because it's allowing us to introduce authors. And some of these are very new authors and some of these are old favourites with new books. Um, and we're very excited about being able to introduce those uh, to the to our Facebook community, um, but it takes a bit of work, Val. So I've been mm. like I've been in full admin mode whilst I've been doing my proofread this week. It's been a little bit crazy, but anyway, that's what I've been doing. What have you been doing? <laughs> well, you are a GSD sort of person, you know, get done kind yeah, of person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am. I'm amazed at how productive you are. We actually need. <laughs> to take a leaf out of Alison's book because no sooner does she say she's going to do something, she actually does it within minutes practically. Um, you know, whereas some people take months or weeks before they take action on something they say they're going to do. So actually, actually, where does that come from, Al? Because I... it is very, it's it's pretty fabulous trait. I think it just comes from, you know, I think it just comes from I have been working from home for years and it, mm. I have learned to prioritise things and make things work. I have worked around children. I have done all of those things. And I think it's a matter of um, I think it's a matter of time management. But the, the getting stuff done is about if you don't like what I have learned and this is what I say to my children, I like I try to role model what I say. If you get it done now, mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about it later. So there's mm -hmm. that aspect of it. It's just like, okay. And also people who talk about stuff, you know, yeah, we should totally do that one day. Mm -hmm. It's just, I've just, I'm not that person. Like, so when you say to me, I'm so going to write a novel one day, mm -hmm. I am the person who's going to say to you, okay, well, you should sit down today and start. Like yeah. there is a reason I write, you know, six reasons you should start writing your novel now stuff. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, and it's, it comes down to all of those things. There's never a perfect time to do anything. Yes, I'm busy. Um, I'm always going to be busy. So if I put it off until I'm less mm. busy, it's not going to happen. So I guess it's all the reasons that I, you know, managed to get my books written mm. is the reason that I'm going to go we should do this, we should get it done, let's get it started, let's get on with it. And the other thing, of course, is that I look for help and mm. particularly when I'm trying to manage something like this giveaway. And, you know, my my, my friends, Alison Rushby and Megan Daly, who manage that group with me, are mm. fantastic. You know, we have different skill sets, we have different roles to play and everybody goes, okay, I'll do this. It's not like being on, you know, you, you're sometimes on a committee mm. and everyone's like, yeah, oh God, that would be so good, we should totally do that. Mm. And then like one person gets on with everything that's yeah. not how it works for our team and I think if you're going to manage um something like the your kids next read group I could not be in better company because you uh, you need to be with people who are going to do what they say they're going to do otherwise mm. 
it's it's a huge job moderating that group when there's 10,000 people in that group. D- we read every comment and mm. I could not do that by myself. No. Um, so the three of us work together. You know, we, we have our own WhatsApp group and we just, you know, there's a lot of technology that can help with this stuff now. Um, so, you know, f- find good people. It's like, you know, you and I, we support each other through all of these things and that's why our podcast works because it's not just one person doing all the interviews all the time and getting resentful. It's like, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, you do this, you do that. And that's if you're going to work with people, work with people who have the same work ethic that you have. That's, you know, if you're going to co-author a book, work with someone who works the same way you do. Like you just, um, and if it's not working for you, walk away. That's yeah. my advice. That's how yeah. I get, that's how I GSD. <laughs> 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 oh wow. All right. So you have um some interesting links for us too. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So obviously like the Your Kids Next Read, uh, there's a link in the show notes to that if you would like to have a look. Come and join the community, see what yes. it's all about. Please have a look at that. Um, I have got a great uh post up up in my on my blog at the moment from the mm. lovely Kate Simpson. Now you guys might have uh might remember we talking about her book Anzac Girl. Um, a little while ago, it's a picture book about her great great grandmother who was in World War One, Alice Ross King, and it, it's just it's like honestly, like I, I'm raving about this book to every single person, um, and we're going to have an interview uh, with Kate, you know, a little bit down the track, but it's a it's a great book, and I loved it, and so she has written for me a. Um, a post in my writing tips for kids uh, series. So I have a series that is specifically children's authors, top children's authors offering their own writing tips for children, as in young writers. Um, But it works brilliantly for beginner writers as well. Because, you know, the thing is that the, the basic information doesn't really change. It's just the level of sophistication that goes around it, whether you're teaching children or teaching adults. Yeah. And so this particular post is called Writing for Kids, Where to Find Ideas. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. Um, and I do it when I go to my school talks, you know, ideas are all around us. They're everywhere. They are in your house, which is possibly going to be very useful in the future. Um, they are everywhere. But she specifically looks at looking at your family history, you know, for young kids. Talk to your mum, talk to your grandmum, talk to whoever about, you know, you just don't know. There might be a famous war hero in your family, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and then, of course, she talks about how to then use that story and and jump off into a creative piece. And her mm. second tip, which I love, is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, <laughs> which is, you know, which is so true because, you know, sometimes you'll say to kids, you know, you should totally write the story and they'll give you like a it, – it, when it's like when I talk to them about, about journaling, I always say, you know, you need to keep a diary. But when you write the diary, don't give me the I woke up, I went to school, I played with my friends – I came home, I had a milkshake, I went to bed. Don't give me that. That is not the story. The story is the one weird thing that happened to you that day and then you make that bigger. Yeah. You exaggerate it. You turn it into something, you know, you don't let the truth get you. Know, your daily life might be as dull as, but if you see, you know, something funny on your way home on the bus out the window, you use that and you'd use that as a jumping off point into a big story. And that's what she, um, that's what she talks about in this is, you know, using what's, you know, is there a lizard living at the bottom of your backyard? What if it was a one metre long goanna and it snuck into your brother's room mm. while he was asleep? 
So you're kind of looking at what's around you, but then you're going to turn it into a story and a story is bigger than the lizard. It's it's the goanna. You're looking for the goanna, not the lizard. I like that. I like that. So, of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. So it's a great post on Alison's blog by Kate Simpson. But also, apart from checking out the show notes, make sure, if you're new to us, that you join our Facebook group. We've got a wonderful <laughs> listener community on Facebook. And all you need to do is search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. There's so many awesome people from different walks of life. But one thing we all have in common is that we love writing. So we had a really useful, interesting question from Nigel Butler in the Facebook community. And he said, I'm very keen to hear from members of the group of the group who are both freelance writers and creative writers. How do you divide your time between the two? Do you have a set routine? For example, I'll do an hour of creative writing a day and the rest is my freelance writing time. Or do you wing it? Alison Tate, I remember you talking about once on the podcast, um, would you be happy to explain how you made it work? Uh, Nigel says, when I'm doing both, I find the freelance side of things takes over mainly because that's my immediate income. But also I find my head is quickly filled with freelance ideas, which can crowd out my creative writing ideas. Mind you, when I'm in a nine to five job, that can crowd out my ideas too. I'm wondering about ways to create boundaries between the two. So that's a really good question from Nigel, who is an awesome author. He wrote King of the Road, which is a fantastic um, thriller, uh, awesome crime novel. Um, but Alison, you have done both. So yes. why don't you take, a, take it away? <laughs> take, it, take it away, Al. Mm. Um, okay, so... Yeah, I have talked about this before. I do remember us having these conversations. But basically, when it comes to this kind of stuff, when you're writing a million words and, you know, like when, you, um, when you're freelancing and you're writing creatively as well, you are writing a lot of words all the time. Um, and it is even more difficult if you are trying to do those things and you have a young family and you have, you know, the general life admin stuff to do as well. Um, but the basic premise is this. The paid work always comes first, always. Um, you have to front and centre that because that is is what is going to free up. You are, you, you know, it's like I, I say to my son who is a, you know, a young musician and, and you know, at this stage is still at school so he doesn't have to worry about earning his rent as yet. But, you know, I always say to him, you know, the three-day-a-week job that pays your rent is um, – it's amazing how much easier it is to work creatively when you don't have to stress about whether or not your rent's paid. So the paid work always comes first. You do the freelance stuff first. So the way I made it work, particularly when my kids were younger, um, which is when I was mostly doing, like at that point in my life, um, particularly uh, before the Mapmaker Chronicles, the first Mapmaker Chronicles book was published, my the bulk of my income was freelance and I was writing a lot of freelance articles a week. Those were the things that I did during the day. That was my work. I had to focus on getting the interviews done. I had to focus on writing those articles and meeting my deadlines. I had to, at that point, I was working around um, you know, I had young kids, so I, you know, I had uh, the youngest one was at was at home, um, and my older one was at, was in primary school. So, you know, I had maybe six hours a day uh, where he was out of the house, but often the other one was still there. So I was, you know, when he was asleep, I was getting stuff done, which he didn't sleep often enough. But that's a whole <laughs> another story. Um, and then, 
if I didn't get everything done during the day that needed to be done, uh, I was back at my desk most nights at nine o'clock. So I would, mm. I would put the kids to bed. I would have, you know, my, my husband is a builder. Um, and at that point he was, uh, still, you know, working a job where he was starting at seven in the morning and he was finishing at four in the afternoon. So he would be gone in the morning, but he was going to bed at nine o'clock. So, mm. you know, there was a, there's a certain amount of freedom in that. If you, you know, if you're not having to be friendly, like <laughs> watch telly, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. do yeah, all yeah. those things. It was just like, yeah, see ya. And yeah. then I would be back at my desk and I would <laughs> finish up whatever, whatever needed to be done. Um, you know, I'm fairly, I'm, a, you know, really, I'm actually probably, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a workaholic who doesn't have the opportunity to be one because I have too many other factors. Um, but I would be back at my desk and I would get whatever freelance writing stuff hadn't finished that would get done. And then I would do the creative stuff. So when I talk about the fact that I was writing at midnight, I I'm not joking. Like this is not me, yeah. you know, coming up with some romantic backstory. This <laughs> is me. This is how I did it. And if you go back, if you want to go back through my Facebook, you know, please don't do this. But if you did want to, you would find, you know, seven years ago, you would find, you know, 10.30, well, here I am. Is anyone writing? You know, those kinds of posts because that's what I did. You have to allocate the time yes. that is going to be useful and available to you. And that was the best time for me to do it. For me, your time yeah. might be different. Your time might be five o'clock in the morning. I am not a morning person. But yeah. that was the best time for me because I have always been a night owl. That is my you know time. And it was the only time of the day that I knew I wasn't going to get interrupted. Because yeah. everyone was asleep and Fantastic. it was really quiet. So that's, mm, mm. you know, that's how I did it. So my th my thing is, like, and I have talked about this so often, mm. routine. It mm. is the most boring subject, but it is how you get books written. It yes. is how you GSD, Val, so, routine. Absolutely. And I think, so my advice to Nigel and everyone else who is in Nigel's position mm. is that there's this great episode, episode 47, with this awesome author called Nigel Bartlett. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He used to write on Sundays, remember? Exactly. The biggest takeaway from that Nigel episode. Bartlett. And maybe Nigel's forgotten. But the, um, you know, it was a, he wrote this page turning novel. And uh, one of the biggest takeaways from that episode is he quarantined Sundays yeah. um, to the point where he would say no to all his social engagements. And that and, and is that's his it. day. You have and to be yeah, prepared you, to you give do. stuff up and you've got to work mm. out what you're willing to give up. And that's, and that's it for, you know, for some people it might be married at first sight. I am more than happy to give that up. Like that for me is like television went out the door for me for like a long time, you know, it's slightly back now, but even so I would rather be writing something than watching Survivor, even though yeah. that is what I do with my family because we have to be friendly. Be right? friendly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine living with me? I mean, seriously, <laughs> do you want to live with me, people? I don't think you do. Anyway, so that so Nigel, I hope that helps. Um, yes. I know you, and if and if this also helps, I know you can do it. I know you can because yeah. you've done it before. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, and ended up with a fantastic result. Exactly. Um, all right, so let's move on to our competition this week. Our competition is pretty awesome because uh, our competition is. Um, 
we have three copies of the Banksia Bay Beach Shack by Sandy Docker to give away. And that's particularly special because we're about to speak to Sandy about her book, which is her third novel. She's also alumna of the Australian Writers' Centre. She's done courses with us and this is now her third novel. So The Banksia Bay Beach Shack, a novel about mystery, secrets and lies. A year is a long time in the memory of a small town. Stories get twisted, truths become warped, history is rewritten. The sleepy seaside town of Banksia Bay has a community where everyone seems to be hiding something. A moving and heartfelt story by the best-selling author of The Kookaburra Creek Cafe and The Cottage at Rosella Cove. So if you would like your chance to win, go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on 30th of March. So make sure you go to writercenter.com.au slash win. And if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, we'll have some other fabulous competition for you to enter as well. Now, Al. Can I just say, that sounds yes. like such a perfect escapist kind of read right yes. now. I, I feel, I've been saying for months and months and months that I felt like escape reads were going to be the go this year and mm. I am only becoming more and more convinced of that. Oh, I'm going to start definitely. writing. I want to. I want to write a YA novel called Love and Other Viruses. What do you think? Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. No, not yet. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon, maybe. Too soon. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, no, it is. Going. It actually sounds a bit like your hometown, Al. And after reading it, I'd, I wanted to go there. <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, so are you ready for the word of the week? Have you got one? Yes, I do this week. <laughs> that was I think that was my favorite word of the week segment ever last week. That was so funny. I was just sitting there waiting. I'm sitting here thinking, where is she gonna go with this? Anyway, I'm very excited that you have one. So please yes. hit me. Not only have I got a word of the week, I actually used this in real life this morning. So profligate. P-R-O-F-L-I-G-A-T-E, profligate. Hmm. Go on. I, I do know it, yes. I don't know that I would have – I don't – I do know the word and I would yes. understand it in context, but I don't know that I would be able to define it for you if you ask me. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so it comes from the Latin word that means to ruin, but according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means utterly shameless, uh, utterly and shamelessly immoral. So you might say the billionaire lived a profligate lifestyle as a result of his ill-gotten gains. And in fact, I used it in a real sentence this morning because I was um, emailing somebody and I referred to the profligate spending of the founder of WeWork, which has now led to, you know, oh. uh, its downfall. So, mm. yes. I think I would use it to describe, I just watched recently Gladiator again oh. because, well, because we went to Rome oh, um, yeah. in our trip, you know, many months ago. Yeah. I doesn't, like it feels like six months ago, but it wasn't actually that long. Oh. Um, we were watching it with, with my youngest son because we thought, oh, you know, that might be a bit fun. And um, Joaquin Phoenix in that movie mm. is just so incredibly good at mm. being profligate. Oh, right. Well, you used it in a sentence. Yeah, 
I was coming. I was, I was getting there. See, there you go. All, All right. right. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. As mentioned, it is Sandy Docker, who grew up in Coffs Harbour and then fell in love with reading when her father introduced her to fantasy books. And she's done a number of different jobs since and worked um, in Australia and in London. Uh, she now lives in Sydney and, as I mentioned, She's just re- released her third book, The Banksia Bay Beach Shack. So let's have a listen to Sandy Docker. Thanks for joining us today, Sandy. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Valerie. Congratulations on The Banksia Bay Beach Shack. For readers who haven't got their hands on this book yet, can you tell us a bit about what it's about? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Um, The Banksia Bay Beach Shack is a story of first love and last chances and of the lies and the truths that we tell that can affect people's lives for generations to come. Wow. Okay. So (laughs) now your previous novels are The Kookaburra Creek Cafe and The Cottage at Rosella Cove. You've got a thing about small towns, don't you? I really do have a thing Mm. about small towns, Um, very possibly because I grew up in one, I think, and I do actually miss it now that I live in Sydney. Really? Yes, I do. (laughs) Oh, I'm a country girl at heart uh, and my husband's a city boy, so um, that causes quite a bit of conflict actually. Right. So the Banksia Bay Beach Shack is obviously set in Banksia Bay. Now, what kind of town is that just to give people a sense of place? Yeah, it's a really small, close-knit town and it's nestled amongst some Banksia-covered hills on a lovely little beach with a cute jetty and a lovely shack there. And it's a town where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows each other's business. It's also a town where secrets can get hidden quite well and there's a bit of a surfing culture in the town as well and um, it's probably out of all the the small towns that I've written the one that feels closest to home to me. Mm, I mean it sounds like an idyllic town I want to go visit there. Um, Yes absolutely. Can you give give people an idea of the premise like it opens I'm I'm not giving anything away because this is literally the first page Um, (laughs) it opens with you know someone's passing so and then what happens you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So Laura, our protagonist, is at the funeral of her grandmother and her grandmother pretty much raised her all of her life. And um, during and after the funeral, she discovers two things. She discovers an old photo of her grandmother at the beach and she knows that her grandmother always hated the beach. Uh, And on the inscription on the back says Sisters of Summer. And she also knows that her grandmother never had a sister. And then after the funeral, she discovers a broken pendant in amongst her grandmother's things and a postcard from Banksia Bay. So she puts all of these uh, little clues together and decides that she needs to go to Banksia Bay to find out what it was in her grandmother Lillian's past um, that meant so much to her about this place. Now, how did the idea for this novel form? Was there a light bulb moment where you came across a pendant or an old photo yourself or did this idea evolve over time? Oh, I have the worst origin stories of any author I've ever met. 
You know, they always have these amazing stories about, you know, trekking through the Himalayas and coming across a monk and that's how they came up with their story. I've got really awful origin stories. (laughs) This one, I know, it's terrible. Um, This one, I was actually at home in Coffs Harbour one Christmas, I think it was, and we were walking along one of the beaches up there just after rain and I don't know if you've ever walked along a beach just after rain, but the sand is always really cold Mm -hmm. and damp. And um, I was barefoot on the beach walking and I felt that dampness and it reminded me of a moment from my childhood where I was once sitting on um, a beach after rain and the damp and it kind of seeps all the way into your bones. And I had this image of a girl sitting on a beach during a rainstorm, the cold seeping into her bones but her not getting herself out of the weather. And I was thinking, okay, why? Why wouldn't she get out of this rain? Why wouldn't she leave the beach and get dry? What would make somebody sit there, um, you know, in quite a depressed state she was in my head uh, and just letting the rain fall on her on the beach? And that was the first scene, so to speak, that came into my head for this novel. That's not a boring origin story. (laughs) (laughs) Walking along the beach, we all do that. (laughs) Okay, so that's that was the seed of the novel. But how did that then uh, get fleshed out? What did you do from that point to to flesh out the whole rest of the plot? Yeah, um, a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with the terms plotter and pantser. Mm-hmm. Um, I am absolutely a pantser. I, I fly by the seat of my pants. I don't plan my novels. So all of them have started with just that one scene, wow. uh, like the speech scene. And then I sit down and I ask myself the questions. Who is she? Why is she sitting there? Why is she so upset? What's wow. going on? And I just I just let it grow from there. Oh, wow. Okay. So give us a little bit of an idea of um, the timeline then. So from the point where you had that, uh, you know, image in your head, planted in your head, how long then did you work on, did you pants (laughs) before you ended up with a first draft of your manuscript and then, you know, the key points from there until publication, just sort of briefly? Sure. Um, A lot of my pantsing involves marinating in my mind. So I didn't put pen to paper on this one for quite a while. It was in my mind for, gosh, at least 12 months, Mm. just sort of swimming around in there and thinking of different elements that could maybe be brought into the story. And when I started putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, I guess, Mm. um, it took about five months to write the first draft. Wow. So when you were writing that first draft, were you effectively writing full time? Like, can you tell us a little bit about your typical writing day during first draft? Yeah, it is pretty much full time. And because I'm a pantser, I'm also a procrastinator. So I tend to find myself uh, quite tightly up against my deadlines because in my head, I've got all the time in the world. And so I'll, you know, watch something on Netflix. And then I realize I haven't got all the time in the world. And and so it's quite frenetic for me. Um, So I write uh, during school hours when my daughter is at school and then uh, night times once she's in bed as well. Every day? Uh, When the deadline is looming, absolutely, it's every day. So with this particular book, did you have a deadline by which you had to produce a manuscript? 
Yes. So I signed my contract with Penguin for this one in uh, the October and I had to have the first draft in by the 1st of April. Okay. And so when you were writing then during school hours, do you aim for a word count or getting to the end of a particular scene or or, or chapter or anything like that? Yeah, this is the first time I've actually had to do that. With the Kookaburra Creek Cafe and the Cottage at Rosella Cove, I actually had those manuscripts finished Mm. before I got signed with Penguin and they took years and years and years. Um, So this was a very different experience for me, writing the Banksia Bay Beach Shack. I'd never cared about word count before, um, but being on such a tight um, time frame, you know, five months to write a novel, I did actually start paying attention and I would set myself mini goals. At first, I didn't know what they were because I didn't know how many words I could write in a day because I hadn't had to look at it before. So I started small, yeah, can I get 500 words done? Oh yeah, that was actually quite easy. Oh, tomorrow, can I get a thousand? And and that's how I did it. And 2000 is a, is a good day at the computer. Um, I have done 5000 in a day. Wow. Um, that was a, that was a hard slog. <laughs> yeah. And so did you, as a pantser, did you ever write yourself into a corner or or realise this is not going in a useful direction, I'm going to have to chuck it out? I actually find it a little more freeing um, in that regard. I would be worried if I had a plot plan written out, then I would get sort of written into a corner and not know how to get out. But being a pantser, I've got that freedom of going off on tangents and seeing where they go. Um, And usually, if I actually listen to my characters, um, what they're telling me is usually the right thing to do. So if I'm in tune with them and follow their lead, Mm. um, we we like to think we're in charge as writers, but we're not. Um, The characters are absolutely in charge. Um, And I find if I listen to them, they always lead me in the right direction. So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by listening to your characters. How do you do that? Um, I don't know how to answer that without sounding like I should be locked up in a padded (laughs) room in a white jacket somewhere. Um, (laughs) um, I find, and I, I think a lot of authors find the same thing, that our characters speak to us inside our own minds and um, they'll have conversations with us or they certainly do with me Um, and, you know, I might have in my logical side of the brain an idea of where I think someone is going and if I try to force that, they will actually stop me. Um, You know, it'll be um, maybe it's like a daydream, I guess, um, where you know, they're sort of telling me, actually, no, I want to turn right, not left. And um, and I'm like, no, 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 but I've got this plan for you. And they're like, yeah, but no. Um, and then when I follow them right instead of left, then it's like a light bulb moment, I guess, where their story then becomes really obvious to me. Mm. Um, and I go, aha, that's what they're meant to be doing. Mm. Now, this book, as you mentioned, um, the protagonist, Laura, uh, it opens with um, her grandmother passing and uh, it goes on to discuss, uh, to reveal a little bit more about her grandmother. So obviously elements of the story were set in the past, in the 60s or, you know, yeah. What did you have to do to research some of that time and what was around and some of the references that you made um, and what life was like? 
Yeah, well, I was born in the mid-70s, so the 60s is not a, an era that I have lived mm. through. So I did have to research quite a bit. And it's it's really simple things like what was the, what was the popular music at the time? Mm. And, you know, for someone who wasn't of that era, I could say something like, oh, it was the Beach Boys, obviously. But when I'm talking about 1961, mm. Beach Boys actually weren't popular in 1961. They were a little bit later than that. So I had to get those elements right. And that's what I had to research. Um, and what was school-like, because we do actually see some of um, one of our other characters, Virginia, Gigi, her schooling life. Um, did they wear uniforms back mm -hmm. then, particularly in small country towns? How many kids would have been at the school in, in a small country town in those days? Um, those were the sorts of things that I had to look at. Where would, you, would you research how many kids would have been in a small country town, that sort of thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, you know, a town of the size that I had in my head, yeah. um, would they have gone to school in their own town, for right. example? But where would you get that information? Where did you research that? Oh, Google is an author's best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also using your network of connections. So there were a couple of mm. times I got out on Facebook mm. and said, those of you from, you know, who grew up in the 60s, and I would ask them a question. And they would come back and answer. And um, so I guess that's sort of like crowdsourcing almost mm. the information and getting their personal experiences, which is always better than, you know, some textbook somewhere. Mm, mm, mm. And how did, um, did you uh, research things like, you know, Miss Dally Watkins' um, <laughs> <laughs> deportment my, school? <laughs> my grandmother is actually a graduate of. Uh, oh, really? Yes, of Miss Dally Watkins. Um, so I, I, I knew well, a little late bit Miss about Dally Watkins now. Yes, yes, I know, not that long ago, which was no. very sad. Um, so I'd sort of, I'd grown up with the knowledge of right. what that was and, you know, who went there and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. So can you give... Uh, listeners, just a bit of an idea, just a potted career history so far, so that they get an idea of what you've done until, you know, now a three-time novelist. Yeah. Um, it, it was not a direct path at all or a logical path. Um, my first adult job, I suppose, um, was as a flight, um, at working at Flight Centre. Oh. As Agent, yes. Um, at the time, I was very young at the time, thinking, "Oh, I'll get to travel the world." Um, it didn't suit me that kind of a job, so I left there and I went to work in administration at the University of Newcastle, and I stayed there for a few years. And then I trained as an ESL teacher, English as a second language, mm. and I taught that for approximately ten years, um, both here in Australia and in London. And I loved that. Then I had uh, children and I stopped work for a while and um, that was when the writing became a thing. Yeah, right. So how did you get interested in it in the first place? Because, you know, um, you, you, what you were doing wasn't really directly related. No, not at all. <laughs> not related <laughs> at all. Um, yes. I had studied Mandarin at university and oh. part, just a random <laughs> fact about me. Um, and part of the course that we did was a translation component. And we were translating um, what I guess are the equivalent of Aesop's Fables, right. but the Chinese version of Aesop's Fables. Mm -hmm. um, we were translating those into English. 
And for anyone that speaks another language, you'll know that it's it's very rare that you can translate things word for word, especially works of, of creative work. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's quite an art and a knack to translation. And we'd done an assignment, which I handed in. Um, thankfully, they were only short texts. Um, and my lecturer said to me, Sandy, I think you've got a real knack for writing. Have you ever thought about being a writer? And I thought she was absolutely crazy because I was the kid, unlike every other author I've ever met, who did not enjoy reading growing up. Really? No, like I should <gasps> be barred. Authors Association of Australia. Um, I know it's the complete opposite of what um, is normal and what is expected. Um, I was the kid that wanted to be outside playing the whole time. Uh, Reading was not on my radar at all until I was in my late teens and my father, who was a massive reader, handed me a fantasy novel and he said, just give it a go, just try it. And I worshipped the ground that my father walked on and I wanted to please him and I did. And that was when I discovered reading. Um, and from there I moved into Jane Austen and that was when my love of women's fiction started. Um, so it wasn't a natural thing for me to ever think about writing. And the only writing I did as a teenager was, you know, that awful angsty poetry when you break up with your boyfriend <laughs> yes. and that sort of thing. Um, so when when my Chinese lecturer said this to me, I, I just went, yeah, no way. She's just nuts. And then I didn't think about it again until my husband, well, my then boyfriend, now husband, and I moved to London like a lot of young Australians do to work and travel. And it was while I was over there and I was teaching English and I think I was missing home a lot. You know, I grew up in Coffs Harbour, which was 25,000 people at the time when I was growing up. And then I did university in Newcastle, which despite being called a city is still very much a small town. And then I was living in London, which is the complete opposite of, you know, the, of the upbringing that I had. And I was just missing home so much. And that was when I went, I wonder if my lecturer was right. Could I give this writing thing a crack? And so I wrote what would become the most god-awful manuscript you've ever read. <laughs> Um, and I thought it was brilliant, of course, at the time, but it, mm-hmm. it wasn't. There was no way it was ever going to be turned into anything. Um, but I discovered through that that I could write an entire manuscript of 90,000 words and that I loved it. I loved the process. And so when we moved back to Australia to get married, um, that was when I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a bit more of a crack and see where it goes. And Kookaburra Creek and Rosella Cove were born. Wow. And so tell us, um, because you've done some courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, how were they helpful in your writing journey? Yeah, so when I decided to start doing some courses, I was at the stage in my writing life where I had two completed manuscripts and I had been sending them out through the query trenches and I was receiving some interest from both agents and publishers, but I wasn't getting that final yes. I wasn't getting over the line. And I thought, okay, I must be missing something. Either there's something missing in my writing or there's something missing in my approach uh, mm-hmm. to the querying trenches. There's got to be something else that I need that I can do to help. So that was when I started doing some courses. And I did some courses at the Australian Writers Centre that covered social media because that was something I knew 
nothing about. I did some creative writing courses and I also did some courses that were based on publishing, you know, how to get published and to understand what the publishing industry is like. And um, what I found was that, um, you know, that helped me sort of hone my manuscripts that little bit, hone my pictures when I was querying. Um, the background information that I learned about the industry was so, so, so important. And when I did get that meeting with Penguin, uh, which would turn into ultimately a yes, mm-hmm. and I was sitting there opposite the publisher and she was talking about the way the publishing house works and acquisitions meetings and all those other things with industry jargon, I was able to converse with her in a really knowledgeable way. And while ultimately it's the story that sells to a publishing house, I think the fact that I appeared to be so professional and so knowledgeable about the industry certainly made it easier for her to pitch to the rest of Penguin mm-hmm. that they should take me on as an author. Mm, that's great. So let's just circle back to you got um, you got a contract for this in an, around in October and then you had to deliver in an April and then come the edits, right? Yes. What was that process like for you and were there many things you had to change structurally? What was it like? Yeah, there's. I've discovered that there's always things that – they suggest that yeah. you change. They never, it's, it's never black and white. It's never yeah. you must do this. Mm. Um, but they, some things they lightly suggest, some things they very strongly suggest. Mm. Um, and it's your job then to to cut off your emotions, I guess, and have a critical look at what they're saying and why they're saying it. Um, yeah. And, yeah, um, I think I changed the ending. Banksia Bay based on their suggestions. Um, I got a little bit um, trigger happy with killing some characters off in this novel and they said, "Um, remember what genre you're writing in, Sandy? Um, So I had to resurrect a few people. Uh (laughs) Editing process sort of pull back a little bit. Um, Yeah, I actually really enjoy the editing process though um mm-hmm. you know when you first get your feedback it can be a bit of a, a kick in the guts mm. um, because you think you've written something that's brilliant and you know they tell you how brilliant it is yeah. but can you just make some changes um and it can hurt sometimes um yes. the editing process with Banksia Bay was probably the smoothest one I've had though out of the three so um yeah I actually really enjoyed that And, of course, one of the great things that you had in your favour, which we tell our listeners all the time, is that you actually had your second manuscript ready to go because invariably publishers always want to know what have you got next. So you've got one waiting the wings. And I assume that Penguin thought it was great that you had a second one waiting in the wings because then they could bring that out, you know, after the first one. Is that right? Absolutely. And that was something that I learned through doing the courses. You know, when you write your very first manuscript, you sort of sit back and pat yourself on the back Mm. and go, look how clever I am. I've done it now. (laughs) And then you, you know, wait for the offers of publication to come in and, (laughs) and they don't. And one of the things that I think more than one of the tutors has mentioned was get stuck into your next one. Yeah. You know, yes, it's fantastic. You've finished your first one. 
now you need to start the next. And so I was in a, a really good position that I had two completed manuscripts when I went into that meeting with Penguin. Yeah. And I had the idea for Banksia Bay as well. So I actually had a pitch for that. So when I had my meeting with the publisher at Penguin, she had read both Kookaburra Creek and Rosella Cove. Mm. And her one of the very first questions she asked me was, and what have you got next? Wow. Isn't that it was great? one of the first things. Yeah. Great. So with Banksia Bay then, you they made their strong suggestions and their, <laughs> yes. their not so strong suggestions. How long did it take for you to do those edits and give them the next version? Yeah, so it's actually quite a process. Um, You're normally given about four weeks to do that structural edit in the first instance uh, and then you send that back in and then they may come back with another structural edit Mm -hmm. after that Uh, and then you go into copy editing Mm -hmm. and then you go into proofreading. So all up the editing process, uh, so that was April and then we put it to bed probably around October last year. So while you're editing that, did you have your fourth one in your brain or were you marinating that already? Yeah, I was marinating it. I wasn't actively doing any work on it, Mm. um, but I was definitely marinating it and I had already pitched that to Penguin. So the basic concept uh, had been accepted. Um, Yeah, so I was just, yeah, sort of letting it marinate in the background um, and I'm in the thick of trying to complete that draft now. So so you're writing it now? Uh, Yes, it is due in April. Is it (laughs) set in a small town? Uh, It is. It is called the Wattle Island Book Club. Oh, I love it. That's great. Yes. So there's actually two small towns in this one, yeah. Brilliant. All right, so you're in the thick of actually writing the fourth uh, novel now. Mm-hmm. How has your writing process evolved over time? What do you do more efficiently and why? I used to write everything pen and paper by hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> really? I know. Everybody is shocked. Yes. I, I know. And I'm, on, I'm not that old. So. On like... On, in exercise books, a <laughs> <laughs> four exercise books, but exercise. Yeah, oh. I, um, so Kookaburra Creek and Rosella Cove were both written oh. that way. Um, there was, <laughs> do you need a coffee? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, this still shocks me when I hear this. Anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I actually love that process. There's there's something about the physical connection that you have to your words when you write uh, pen and paper. And in my defence, Valerie, there have been studies that prove that it actually is a different connection with the brain, different uh, synapses fire when you write um, pen to paper. It is. Um, However, that's very time-consuming. Yeah, and it's and sore you, for your hands. Um, well, I was used to it, so so mm. I didn't get sore. Um, but then you have to type it into the computer, yeah. uh, which is another process. Um, with Banksia Bay, I did not have the time to write uh, pen to paper, so I had to type it straight into the computer. So that's been the, one of the biggest changes for books three and four. Um, they're going straight into the computer. Mm. There's no handwriting, which I do miss. But and how, did, how is that different in your brain synapses? Like how have you felt that's different or what are you missing out on or what's better um, in doing it this way now? I think the thing that I'm missing 
from it is the leisurely pace that you can go when you're writing by hand and and going off on different tangents and coming back and and sort of finding your way through the rabbit holes of your story, uh, which I really enjoy. The good thing about having to type straight into the computer and having to meet quite strict deadlines is that I'm a lot more focused on the Mm. story. The story comes out in a much more focused way, um, which is possibly why the editing for Banksia Bay was a little bit smoother because it was more focused to begin with. So when you write, whether by hand or not, um, do you have to do it at home? Are you the sort of person? Because I imagine if I'm writing an exercise book, I'm writing in cafes and, you know, at the beach or whatever. Do you have to be in a certain environment? Uh, No, I don't. I do have um, what I call a library. It is actually just a room in the house with a lot of books in it, Uh, but it's my room and nobody else is allowed in. Um, So I do have that space in my home where I write, but I also find that I sometimes need to um, kind of have a circuit breaker from that environment Mm. uh, when I feel like my brain's getting a little bit um, mushy or the the ideas aren't coming and I will take myself to a cafe. Just that change of scenery, I think, can sometimes help reset the brain Um, Mm. and I take my laptop and do that. Obviously, it used to be the exercise book. Now it's the laptop. Um, I sometimes write in the car when I'm waiting for my daughter to finish her tutoring lesson. Um, I will write anywhere. I tend to write mostly in my library, though. Yes. Now, I want to just unpack the thing about writing in the car because there are so many writers that I talk to who say, oh, I can't do that while waiting for my kid at soccer or whatever. Um you know, what do you do to get into the zone while you're writing? I mean, I, I can do it and I and I encourage people to do it. What do you do to get into the zone so that you can write while you're waiting for your kid at tutoring? Um, deadlines are a really <laughs> fantastic motivator. Yeah. I reckon I could write anywhere under a deadline. Um, it's just that um, concept of I have to get this done. And this yeah. is a chance where I can do it. You know, when, when you've got kids and the husband and a house and, you know, mm. part-time jobs or full-time jobs, a lot of writers have um, other yeah. full-time jobs, you take the time that you can get. You know, you don't always have the luxury of, you know, sitting in a nice beach house somewhere at a writer's retreat. And, you know, when you're running around after school, taking your kids places and you know you've got to cook dinner when we get home and put the washing on, that hour where she's at tutoring is an hour that I can use for my writing. And so you make the most of it. Do you have a part-time job or, or, or full-time job? Or, and, if, and if not, when was your last one? Up until uh, about halfway through last year, I was working part-time administration in a local primary school. Before that, I was doing some part-time work as a swimming teacher. Um, I I am now listed as a casual within the Department of Education. Um, I haven't taken up any work in the last six months. Is that on purpose because you wanted to focus on your writing? Yeah, much to my husband's um, distress, uh, <laughs> who would very much like a more regular income coming mm. in. Um, I haven't taken any because, you know, short deadlines, one book you're writing, one book you're promoting, it's um, it gets a little bit much sometimes, yeah. Yes. Now, you are also working on a fabulous initiative uh, later in the year, by which time I'm sure the um, – you know, the thing about mass meetings is going mm. to have subsided. Um, yes. 
tell us about that because I'm personally really excited about it. I'm glad you are because I am bursting out of my skin with this one. Um, I've got <laughs> I've got together with a, a couple of like-minded uh, readers and writers, and we have decided to create our own literary festival, and Love it's it. going to. It's going to be on the Northern Beaches of Sydney and it's the Northern Beaches Readers Festival. And we very deliberately chose to put readers in the name of our festival instead of writers because for us it's all about connecting readers with the authors that they love to read. Love it. Uh, so we're very, very excited and we have signed up in the last couple of weeks some amazing <gasps> Australian authors. Um, and I might just do a little bit of name dropping here if Drop, that's okay. Drop the names, please. So we have the likes of Rachel Johns, <gasps> Christian White, oh, wow. Sally Hepworth, Fantastic. Michael Robotham, awesome. uh, and a whole bunch of wonderful authors from romance, from historical, from crime. Candace Fox is oh, coming. Um, it's just, it's amazing. We're so excited. This is so wonderful. And I love the fact that it's literally down the road from me. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, you can walk there and, and, and bask in the wonders of these wonderful authors that we have in Australia. Brilliant. Okay. Well, no doubt we will hear more about it closer to the time. When will it, when's it going to be? Uh, the weekend is the 25th to the 27th of September yeah. this Put year. in your diaries, everyone. Absolutely. Um, we've got our website up and running, www.nbrf for Northern Beaches Readers Festival, .com.au. And we have the profiles of most of our authors up. We're still in the process of doing that so you can see who we've got coming. And um, on our Facebook page, which is NBRF Festival, um, we have Jamie Drury who announced the festival, which was an yes. exciting little coup that we had. Fantastic because he's a local author as well. He is, yes, he's up that way. So um, finally, what's your top three tips for aspiring writers who, you know, hope to be doing what you are now? I'm not sure if this is three tips or one tip, but okay. write, write, write. <laughs> <laughs> you would be surprised the amount of people that um, you meet at events or that contact you through social media that say they want to be a writer and you ask mm. them how much they've written and the answer is, well, nothing. And um, particularly in fiction, you will not get published unless you are famous in some other realm. You know, you're on Home and Away or an amazing sports star. Mm. You will not get published in fiction unless you have a finished manuscript. And the only way you can finish is to write, write, write. Um, so that would be my absolute best tip for people. Okay. We'll take that as, as three tips. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> And well, the more you write, the better you get, like anything in life that you do. Absolutely. All right. Great advice from Sandy Docker, whose latest book is The Banksia Bay Beach Shack. Grab a copy. It's awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Sandy. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. 
our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Alrighty, so there's Sandy Docker. So make sure you enter the competition if you want to win one of her books. Well, so what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, I don't know. What am I doing? <laughs> um, sending back my proofread and uh, wait, I'm writing something else. I'm just, I'm totally, I mean, I just think the best, you know, escape when it all gets too hard is to dive into a story. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. And you, mm. what are you going to do? Um, I'm looking right now at my suitcase. I need to unpack and oh. I will um, be very joyous when I particularly not unpack my suitcase but unpack my toiletry bag. You know, I get very excited when I get to unpack my toiletry bag because it just means you're not going, going anywhere for a while. Yeah. So I shall be doing that. Um, I think oh, we can all unpack our toiletries bags for a while, can't we? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, um, you know, just we're spending a lot of time on our online community. Um, we were um, – obviously this is an interesting time for everyone, but the good thing is that we have been online for a long time. Yeah. Um, our courses have been designed to be online for a long yep. time. So Tried and tested. Tried and tested. We're specialists in this area. We've got, you know, uh, our, our office is as normal. Um, in terms of, you know, email and phone support. So you can feel free to call us um, with your questions. Uh, and all of our teachers are teaching online. And so we'll be um, nurturing our online community in particular uh, because there are so many things that we have available for people to do while you're potentially at home or while you're looking for a distraction from current mm. events. Uh, mm. So, yeah, I'll be doing more of those. Hmm. Excellent. And so I will do we... be there supporting Ex because yes, that's what I do. Yes, will be there as well. So where do we find you online now? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, -O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.